Welcome to episode 487 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature an environmentally astute conversation with the director of the Environmental Advocacy Clinic and Associate Professor of Law at Vermont Law School, Michael R. Harris. We talk with Michael about Friends of Animals, his move from Denver, Colorado to South Royalton, Vermont. We discuss the culture at Vermont Law School and climate change, particular pollution problems, ethics of treating other animals well, harvesting forests to mitigate fires, environmental justice, limited resources, and the national support that exists to protect other species. A grand conversation with Michael R. Harris this go-round. We also have an EWSA titled Complicated, and we share an excerpt from a piece titled Earth Perfected by Emma Dale, published in the August 2021 edition of The Sun Magazine. We have a poem called Geese Fly. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 487 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Yeah. 
Living on my psyche's need for love I want liberation and joy In a paroxysm of intoxication Inspiration ain't no way to be coy Complicated. From Washington, D.C. to a perpetual fantasy of is and what should be bedevils and perplexes me. The lazy afternoons in late June are transforming by nature and by design to where the evergreen pine keeps its green while the rest of the forest prepares to burst into a colorful, vibrant passing into another phase of a cyclical existence. The magnificence of the light from a sun star traveling through vast space and infinite time creates warm hues and reds, white and blues, and I revel in this being alive. The simple person in me wants to understand how to live this life. The complicated person does too. The web tangled, torn, re-knitted, and graciously adorned with most everything one needs. Yet, I still don't know or can believe that I understand the songs of the uccella or the coughs of the sick and tired, the joys and sorrows, the proclivity of humankind yearning for greater portions, the tobacco smoke in my lungs, and the hope that you're not killing yourself in the name and pursuit of culturally concocted notions of rebellious fun, as we lose sight of it all and ourselves, slowly coming undone.
põe um estrela Que canta brilhante Lina mar põe uma areia Que canta moia Espaiando esse mundo fora Só vai Terra povo cheio de amor Temor na tem coladeira Terra sabe cheio de amor Tem batu, tem funaná Espaiol nesse mundo fora Só rotimar Terra povo cheio de amor Temor na tem coladeira Terra povo cheio de amor tem batuque, tem funaná Oi, tanto saudade Saudade, saudade Oi, tanto saudade Saudade sem fim Oi, tanto saudade Saudade, saudade Oi, tanto saudade Saudade sem fim Estrela que canta brilhante e na mar boia uma areia que canta moia espanhol nesse mundo fora só rotimar terra povo cheio de amor temor na tem coladeira terra sal cheio de amor tem batu tem funaná Espaiol nesse mundo fora Só rotimar Terra povo cheio de amor Temor na tem coladeira Terra povo cheio de amor Tem batu, tem funaná Petit país Je t'aime beaucoup Petit, petit Je l'aime beaucoup Petit pays Je t'aime beaucoup Petit, petit Je l'aime Michael R. Harris, is that you? You've got me. <laughs> so nice to have you once again on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, a regular contributor here, I'm happy to say. Michael R. Harris is the director of the Environmental Advocacy Clinic and an associate professor of law at Vermont Law School. Before joining Vermont Law School just recently, he was general counsel and director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, an international nonprofit animal organization. 
once again, Troubadours and Rock on Tours is so very happy to have on the program Michael R. Harris. So, yeah, this is new. You just moved to Vermont from Denver, Colorado. How'd that go, sir? Well, it feels like I'm still in transition. Uh, I should tell you, E.W., I want to tell you how much I appreciate all of the conversations we had and support that you gave me on all those years when I was at Friends of Animals. And, uh, you know, we both have a common a common interest in Vermont Law School, being graduates um, and having gone to school together. And I'm really excited to be back. Yeah, the move was the move. I mean, it's a long move. And at my age, it's even longer and tougher. <laughs> and I have a, a son who's 10. And it, so it's been a it's been a little dramatic. And um, but we're here now where our house is um, settled and I'm at work. Yeah. Are you uh, are we talking with you at your office right now? Yeah, I'm sitting in the new office right now, and my, my, my son's down the street at his new school, and, and both of us seem to be pretty happy. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And um, your wife uh, as well, it's probably uh, difficult for her. You know, a lot of times our spouses make big sacrifices when we find a good job somewhere else, right? Yeah, well, Charlotte has been amazing every time I've needed to make a change in my life over the course of the last 17 years. Uh, uh, she got an unexpected surprise just two weeks before we packed up and left. Her boss resigned, and, and the board of her organization made her the interim CEO. So she has been a constant, um, um, you know, constant focus of having to just take on so much new information and, and, and tasks and activities that this was really the worst possible time for some of the best possible news for her. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm i uh, happy to hear both of you are, are uh, getting more opportunity to do what you love in, in your professions. And Vermont is a wonderful place, I think, to, to raise a child. So I think that's going to be a good thing for Raymond. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I was really amazed at how how um, quickly he adapted to his new surroundings and how excited he was to have the challenge. So, um, yeah, and he, and he wakes up every morning saying, look how beautiful it is outside, Daddy. <laughs> That's great. I remember way back when, when we both met each other at Vermont Law School when we were in our 20s, and I remember you looking up at the sky in South Royalton, and you were, like, overtaken by the density of stars there as compared to where you were coming from in California. Wow, you know that's that's amazing. You remember that? I don't even remember that. But my son and I were just doing that last weekend. Excellent, excellent. Now, well, that same experience all these years later, just going. I mean, look at that. It, that is incredible. The sky here. It's just. Uh, you know, I was in L.A. when I met you the first time I came out here. I came from Los Angeles, uh, this time from Denver. But yeah, nothing matches the intensity of the sky at night here. No, no. And and that's because people in Vermont really take care of, to, to a large extent, you know, more so, I think, than most states, their natural environment. It means a lot to them. There's not a lot, a lot of industry. Uh, and, of course, there are economic sacrifices you make for that. But they can look at the stars and, and see them like most others cannot. And now you're at the preeminent law school in the country for environmental law and policy. And uh, that must be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
not only is this personal connection of having uh, gone to school here and, and having taught here as a visitor once before, but the history here, and I think the culture, more importantly, of environmental law and the leadership that the faculty and students take in this field, there's nothing that rivals that. And I've been involved in environmental law programs at other schools, and they're just that, they're just programs. It's a culture here. Mm. It is, it is a, I, I think I heard up to 60% of the students that come here, you know, come here with the intent of engaging in environmental law. The, the, the number of uh, events that occur, the number of um, outside speakers and scholars that want to attend various uh, lectures here or give lectures here or participate in classes here, it's just it just revolves right around the natural world and teaching is sort of an extension of that. It's not it's not even necessarily the primary focus, right? It's about engagement. Exactly, exactly. And you're you're going to be working with a clinic there, uh, an advocacy clinic. Uh, you'll be engaging with the community uh, pretty extensively, I'd, I'd imagine. I'm, and uh, I know one of the the, the areas of focus for this go-round, our conversation, has to do with your view of climate change. And it's a little bit of a different take, but it falls in, in line with your, your uh, focus in the past. Other animals, you know, how climate change is, is going to affect other animals, especially given how we might react and protect our ourselves, our own species. What, what did you want to? I mean, I, that's the general sense of uh, of what I th I think you want to talk about. You want to expound? Yeah, you know, and you're right. I mean, my focus all these years at Friends of Animals and our past conversations has been on animals, animal rights, uh, non humans, our impact on non human animals. Uh, the one thing I'll just say is, you know, the Vermont Law School has recently adopted a program that's right in line with my thinking. And I'm really excited about sort of collaboration efforts with our new animal law program. And I'll be teaching a class on some of the things that we've discussed over the years as a as when as a, um, uh, you know, as an attorney at Friends of Animals that I developed. I'm teaching a class on that here next semester as well. So I'm, I'm not abandoning at all my interest in non-human animals. But uh, but yeah, this climate change issue and what, what I was hoping to talk to you about, you know, for all these years of being an environmental lawyer, I have never really put myself out there or embraced working on climate change law and policy issues. And that's funny because it is probably the most important or one of the most dominant concerns that we have right now. I mean, it, it, it has the potential of changing life on earth, right? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of great people working on it. And by no means uh, have I thought it was not worthy of working on. It's just that at the same time, on a day to day basis, there are so many smaller problems that feel very large in regular people's lives in normal people's lives and in and even with respect to um, non-human animals lives and i've always felt drawn to doing that work uh, whether it's uh, helping out a community um, with a very particular pollution problem in a very particular part of the world or helping out 
an animal that is being, uh, you know, being killed or, or being harassed or harmed and, and um, otherwise doesn't have anyone to give a voice to their lives, right? Right. But I have to say, this year feels so much different with respect to climate change because everything that has been up to this date a warning, uh, if we don't change, right? Life is going to change on this planet. I mean, for those who really pay attention, we've seen it all along. And, and we, you know, we, we have been keeping track of the changes in the atmosphere conditions and the temperatures on the planet and the loss of ice. But, you know, all of a sudden you can drive around Vermont, for instance, and next to all the yard uh, politics signs are climate emergency signs, right? And now all of a sudden, whether we used to call it global warming and then we call it climate change, now we're calling it climate emergency. And I started to think about what that means and what might what might change. And it's still to be determined, of course, but you know, we've had massive amounts of what thousand year rain events in one year, you know, uh, what three of them in the United States. We've had others overseas. We've had flooding everywhere. We obviously have had drought in places that never had to deal with it before or rarely had to deal with it before. We have just a, a tremendous sort of checking off all the warnings that have been given over the previous decades, just checking them off pretty rapidly over the last 24 to 18 months. And I, I, I personally think that it, it's going to change policy. I, I, I don't think climate deniers will ever come out and say we were wrong. But I do think that we're going to see even climate deniers embrace policies that are intended to um, address some of the climate emergency that we have, whether flooding and uh, drought, um, all those type of things. And do you think they're going to do that based on economics, you know, uh, greed, in other words, or or they just can't stomach the other side and they have to be contrarians because, you know, the other side, they're a bunch of whatever's in their minds. You know, they feel compelled that they must fight back, even though it's it's defeating their own uh, their own uh, sort of healthy living. I think I think a little bit of all of that. I, I think client deniers will never uh, embrace being wrong, but I do think that they will ha have to adapt to increased pressure to deal with with uh, the effects of climate change among their own constituents. Uh, and as it as it sort of the climate climate change isn't going to be focused on whether you're you know on the left or on the right. You're going to feel it where wherever it hits. Right. I just think there's going to be a growing amount of it's not so much climate change that we want you to address, Mr. Senator. It's the flooding in the Mississippi River Valley. It's the drought in 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 eastern Pennsylvania. It's the fires that are raging in Wyoming and New Mexico and Arizona. It's the symptoms that that the um, our current political establishment will no longer be able to ignore or just to say, well, that may or may not happen. And so, yeah, I do think that we're going to see uh, what what looked like, what would have looked like impossible two or three years ago, client deniers in the in the Congress 
embracing policy that's designed to alleviate the effects of climate change without ever admitting it's climate change. Right. Um, and I and I think as part of that, that the those on the left who have been saying, yeah, it's climate change, will probably be able to put into that legislation um, proactive, you know, climate reducing uh, measures as well without the uh, climate denying side ever admitting that that's needed. Um, I just think that's going to happen now. I think it's inevitable because we are human species that react to crisis. And um, you can deny and deny and deny all you want up until, you know, your constituents' land is on fire. Right. Or you have no more, uh, you know, well water in your constituents' farms and, and, um, and homesteads and all of that. But I mean, you see that now, though, right? I mean, in in Kentucky and in Texas, for example, you you still see the obstinance of certain senators. Kentucky's been devastated with flooding because of uh, excessive rain. Texas, drought issues. Yet, uh, uh, Senator Cruz, uh, Senator McConnell votes against the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which was named maybe in a way to to give them cover, right? Because it is a climate change bill. But, you know, they didn't even call it it because maybe they get some Republican votes, I, I presume. But they didn't get a one. Yeah. So we're not yeah. there yet. I, but I think you're right. After a while, constituencies are going to say, hey, what? our neighborhoods are terrible. We need you I, to help us. I think if we were to bring a um, a drought and fire mitigation bill that focused exclusively on funding mitigation projects and to reduce those impacts in the future, I think you're going to have widespread acceptance by the climate deniers in Congress. Um, but the the bill, that, the inflation reduction bill was still a, a more of a traditional, um, you know, climate, uh, basically climate gas reduction act. And that's not the same as a, as a bill that would, that we may see in the next year or two that focuses exclusively on remedying the effects of climate change. Good point. Good point. It is, it is uh, to a lot of folks old school approach to climate change, um, but it, nonetheless, I think most people are saying it's progress. Would you agree? I agree. And if you think about some of the traditional environmental laws this country already has on the books, whether it's Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and even the Endangered Species Act, the reason that they were passed in the 1970s and 80s with support from both the left and the right, from Republicans and Democrats is because they were addressing crises. Yeah. And I think now that we have that, the, 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 the Republicans in particular will be looking for, how can we develop legislation that will address the crisis without ever admitting we have a problem? <laughs> it's now, so immature. It really is. You're right? Well, it, it, it has been for some time, <laughs> their, their response to this problem. So, but here's... Here's what I was, you know, thinking about that is over the course of the last couple of decades, when those, whether they're lawyers or or policy uh, specialists or, or scientists have been looking at the question of climate change, human effect on the climate, increased temperatures and obviously increased uh, amounts of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the checklist of what we might expect included both human and non-human 
potential catastrophes. So, yeah, we were predicting that there could be increased severe weather, increased flooding, increased drought, increased fires, all of that that could affect humans. But we also on that list looked at how significant habitat loss could be, how we might have increasing conflicts between animal species competing over limited resources. Um, we looked at how uh, climate change may affect you know, aquatic environments. The list was very long and included the entire natural world. But as the crisis has gathered momentum, the focus is on the human side of that checklist. Of course. And so the question I am asking to myself and to others is, if we do now start seeing legislation that can be supported by Republicans that that go to mitigate drought, fire, um, the, the impacts of severe weather, are we going to abandon altogether the impacts that are going to come to the non-human world? Are we just going to lose any momentum in the compromises that will, will be reached? And are we in essence, you know, uh, you know, signing the last of many, many death warrants that that we have been involved with over the course of the last couple centuries for non-human animals. A good example is um, we've, we know this is a problem in the West because the West has experienced drought for a much longer time. But the way to alleviate drought without having to uh, sort of like um, you know, undermine you know the human economy or our quality of life is to just find more water sources and divert water and create new projects that bring water to where people want to live. Uh, a lot of places uh, outside of you know the, you know the sort of the southwest have been able to avoid that generally, including the northeast here. But as drought comes, is that going to be the types of solutions that can be supported in a compromise bill? And what does that mean for the non-human animals that, you know, depend upon the water being where it is now, not where we want to take it? Um, likewise, with fire, um, mitigation of fire often means proactively going in and reducing fuels, harvesting forests. Under my, you know, taking out brush, keeping grasses at check. This is already the type of mitigation that occur in fire-prone places in the West for decades. If we start doing that, you know, in the Northern Rockies, in the Northeast, the Southwest, what kind of detrimental effect will that be have on on habitat loss for for the you know hundreds of thousands of non-human animal species? And, and let me ask and, you this: you know, me, are those going to be priorities at all? on bills that are focused on the human climate crisis? Good questions, good insight. Let me ask you this. You know, when you're sharing a concern for other uh, animals, um, why are you concerned? Because of how the depletion of other animals would negatively affect humans or because it's just ethically wrong? I think the answer that would be most helpful is because it, it would affect how their loss would affect other humans. 
But and I think there's a lot of arguments that that is true and 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 can be the case with many species that that end up being um, it, it going into extinction. But for me, it's moral. It's it's an ethical issue that uh, they have the same right to life and to living on this planet and to being um, living a fulfilling and meaningful life and not being disturbed as we do. And uh, we certainly won't have much interest in promoting their well-being if their well-being is in the way of our well-being. Right, right. You, you know you're a realist. When it, when it comes to pu- when push comes to shove, of course, we're speciesist. And we're going to uh, often just let others, other species suffer so that we could feel better or protect ourselves. Um, so I, I guess as an animal rights advocate, you, you have to keep that in mind and not let it get to the point where it's so bad that, you know, humans have to choose, uh, cause they're going to choose them, their own species, you know, oftentimes they, they hurt their, their own species. They're certainly, uh, more prone to, to, um, thus rule out the well-being of birds or, or muskrats or raccoons or bear or deer, what have you. Absolutely. And, and you're right. And I think it's important to note that from an environmental justice standpoint, there's equal concern about the inequities that occur, can occur as we rush to address the effects of climate change between um, people themselves, you know, people of color, uh, people of, from lower income communities, are all likely to suffer more than people from wealthier uh, majority populations. But with animals, right, that's in some ways exasperated because there's even less advocacy on their behalf and less of a voice that's given on their behalf. But both are serious problems and concerns about us rushing into legislation that now the Republicans might be able to support because it's having to address, you know, these effects within their own districts and among their own constituents. So absolutely. And one thing I think that made me think about this a little bit is a lot of the work that I've done has been in the West, where we already pit limited resources to our non-human animal world. And some of the reasons that we've been able to at least have a fighting chance to, let's say, get the government or get courts and judges to side with animals over, let's say, mining interests in Wyoming, is because there are a lot of people in other parts of the country, like the Northeast and the Northwest, who think of resources differently. They think of them as not be they shouldn't be wasted and that we should put our efforts into conserving them and so overall there's been at least strong national support to continue to protect species but one of my concerns is with climate change effects if water becomes more scarce or fires more dangerous in the northeast or the northwest then are they going to be equally compelled to start saying, forget, you know, conservation and non-human animals. 
this is real now. We need to put our interests first, something that, you know, has already been part of the landscape in, in some of the Western states for a long time now. Yeah, so coming out east, you have a little bit of uh, extra experience having been working in the west, I think, uh, uh, given, again, some of the extra challenges they have regarding resources out there. Uh, and, you know, again, you're, you're starting a brand new chapter in your, in your professional life and your personal life in Vermont, moving there uh, to be on the faculty of the premier environmental law school in the country. And I'm so proud to say that, and I'm so happy you're on our program. Uh, the semester's just started. We're just about out of time for our conversation. You're sitting in your office uh, talking with us today in South Royalton, Vermont. What, any, any closing thoughts? What are you, how are you going into the semester, this, this uh, first semester as a full-time faculty member at Vermont Law School? Do you have a certain mantra, a certain reflection that's sticking with you? You know, that's a very good question. Right now I'm going in with my mind spinning about all that's in front of me and how to get grounded. But the, when I'm here in the classroom and with the students, I think my mantra is that the future is right here in front of us. And it's so important for us not to let all of our own anxieties over the environment and, frankly, um, how badly we've sort of made a mess of it. Because all these students coming through here and the students that will be coming through here, we need them to be positive mindset. We need them to focus on taking on the problems. And I always say you take on one problem at a time. If we just start achieving successes, soon you're going to be developing a, a, a whole pile of change. And um, and we've got, a, we've got that opportunity. I don't think that anyone who's doing this work or wants to do this work can see it as being defeated. Resiliency is all around us. Nicely stated, Professor. Thank you so much uh, for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, being a regular contributor. I'm very proud to have you on, and I wish you the best. Talk with you again soon. Tell the family I said hey. Thank you, E.W. You have a, a great weekend. You too. And, and if you see Almighty Todd, give him a hug for me. I'm hoping to see him soon. Excellent. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, well, isn't this sweet? Everyone's playing house. I'm not meaning to mock or trespass on this pretty place.
And the clothes turn away from thy skin Just like that bitter heart So let's end it You don't have the courage to begin with Do you want to slap me? Until I can say what for Do you want to kiss me just once? to share from the August 2021 edition of The Sun magazine titled Earth Perfected, written by Emma Dale. The sunburn on my sister's foot is peeling. It's 70 degrees and sunny in Knoxville, Tennessee. The tulips in my family's front yard are in full bloom, and Natalie and I are upstairs in our parents' bedroom, sitting on the off-white carpet watching Veep. Bruh, it's almost three o'clock, Natalie says, standing. I'll finish this when we get back, but I got to take Mr. Gruff to the vet. Upon hearing one of his 3,000 aliases, our dog Teddy gets up from his napping spot under the sewing table and stares anxiously up at her, shifting his weight from paw to paw, tongue lolling to one side. Let's go, Gimpy, she calls, and he gallops toward the door, sprained back leg pulled up to his ribcage. It's easy in moments like these, with the birds chirping and the sunlight flickering through the cracked glass of the bay windows, to forget that the world is burning around us. When all of my friends were packing up and leaving Rhodes College, pulling books from their dorm room shelves and stuffing their twin-sized divots into black garbage bags, I made the decision to stay put in Memphis. But wouldn't you feel safer at home? I must have heard this a thousand times over video chat and phone calls and in text messages and in-person goodbyes from people with cars crammed and waiting in the driveway. I stuck my chin out like the defender of 1940s home fires in a Norman Rockwell painting and told them solemnly that this was my home. My stiff squeaking bed, my chipped collection of coffee mugs, 
my backyard of Bermuda grass and clover, my succulents over the kitchen sink, my peanut butter cookies that I got for 89 cents at Aldi, my neighbors down the street with their befuddled dog, Cooper, who for some reason always wanted to start something with my dog, Bruno. Why would I ever go back to Knoxville and surrender my freedom to two people who, every time I called, argued for five minutes about whether or not they should put me on speakerphone? Speaking of my parents, they spent weeks trying to convince me to come home. At the start of the outbreak, they would call me together from the car and take turns trying to wear me down, like cops grilling a suspect. Mom would tell me that they were digging mass graves in Iran. Dad would tell me that nothing like this had ever happened in their lifetimes. Frank, Frank, that was our exit. Mary, I know how to drive. Mom would tell me that she had heard things around the office that she wouldn't tell me because they would scare me too much. Dad told me this would be a great time for other countries to invade us. Mom told me to think of my sisters. For clarification, there are four of us. Me, 20, Natalie, 18, Karina, 15, and Ilsa, 13. Of the other three, Natalie is the only one so far who seems capable of holding a non-animalistic conversation. Although Karina does show occasional sparks of self-awareness, as far as I can tell, Ilsa is ruled entirely by impulse. What's wrong with them? I would ask my mom. Nothing, but think of how bored they'll be, she'd reply. After I promised to pack a go bag in case I needed to leave in a hurry, when COVID-19 tried to kick down my door at 2 a.m., they left me alone for a while. But then it was mom's birthday, and then it was almost Easter, and before I knew what had happened, I was wrestling Bruno into his dog car seat, it's what you're probably imagining, and leaving Memphis. On the way out of town, I passed a billboard thanking, quote, our essential workers, and another advising, quote, don't panic, brought to you by cdc.gov. I wondered if I should skip stopping at McDonald's.
hums in the distance through the woods over Summit Lake Creek. I can imagine black bear and deer drinking from it while geese fly over white, black, and gray under the azure sky squawking into the southern wind. Summertime, and the living's easy Rallies on the microphone with Ross MG All the people in the dance will agree that we're well qualified to represent the LBC Me, me and Louie, we gonna run to the party and dance to the rhythm, it gets harder
And there you have it, episode 487 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend, Michael R. Harris, The Sun Magazine, writer Emma Dale, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, The New York Dolls, Cesaria Evora, Elvis Costello and the Imposters, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Lana Del Rey, Branford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care. Summertime and the living's easy 
Rallies on the microphone with Ross and G All the people in the dance will agree that We're well qualified to represent the LBC Me, me and Louie, we gonna run to the party And dance to the rhythm, it gets harder Harder, harder.